Today we're beginning to look at 1 Corinthians. And since we've just recently finished 1 Peter, it's worth pointing out that this letter is very different from 1 Peter. The two letters are different in the challenges they deal with and the way they deal with them. What do I mean by that? Well, if you remember, 1 Peter was written to lots of churches. Those churches were spread over an area of 300,000 square miles. The letter, the one letter, was to be circulated around all of them. And that meant Peter had to speak to those churches in fairly general terms. He couldn't speak to the specific situations of each church. But 1 Corinthians is very different. It is written to just one church. And that allows Paul to be direct and specific in the things he says. He knows this church well. Earlier we read from Acts chapter 18. So we know Paul spent a year and a half living in this city of Corinth. We know that since he left, he's already written one previous letter to them. We don't have that letter, but Paul will refer to it in chapter 5 of this letter. We'll also find out Paul has received at least one letter from the church in Corinth. He's also had visits and personal reports from some individuals in the church. And all of that means Paul can deal with the specifics of what is going on there. As we read this letter, we get a pretty detailed picture of what the Corinthian church was like. And what we find is the challenge they're facing is quite different from the challenge first Peter dealt with. Peter was writing to Christians who were facing some level of hostility and persecution because of their commitment to Jesus. They stood out. They were different from the world around them. But the Corinthians had a different problem. They were just like the world around them. They had accepted the attitudes and the values of their culture. And the result was they hardly stood out at all. One writer summarizes the attitudes and values that were surrounding the Corinthian church. He says, The city of Roman Corinth was prosperous, cosmopolitan, and religiously pluralistic. In other words, there were lots of religions there. It was accustomed to visits by impressive, traveling public speakers, and obsessed with status, self-promotion, and personal rights. As with any pagan city, its inhabitants were marked by the worship of idols, sexual immorality, and greed. That was the environment around the church. And this letter will show us things didn't look very different in the church. People in the church are fighting among themselves. Some are even suing one another. They're indulging in sexual immorality. They're getting drunk when they meet for the Lord's Supper. And even when they're not drunk, their worship services are out of control. And in general, they don't seem to have much regard for each other's welfare. And when we hear all that, it might cause us to ask, well then, why call this series Letter to an Ordinary Church? This church doesn't sound ordinary, it sounds wacky if it even is a church. 
Well, the thing that's ordinary or normal about the Corinthian church is not how they dealt with these temptations and challenges. The thing that makes this church normal is the fact that it faced these temptations and challenges. Normal churches face pressures to fit in with the culture around them. And even when they're committed to living faithfully for Jesus, they face dilemmas about how best to do that. How do we live out our faith in the day-to-day realities and circumstances of our lives? The details of that are a daily challenge for us. And as Paul writes this letter to Corinth, that's what he's going to help them with. So by calling Corinth an ordinary church, we're not saying every church should do what the Corinthians did. We're saying every church faces the same sort of challenges Corinth faced. The challenges of living for God's glory in the messy details and the awkward dilemmas of normal life. The messes and dilemmas that you and I face will not take exactly the same form as they took in Corinth. For example, most of us, I would guess, have already come to the conclusion that getting drunk at the communion table probably isn't glorifying to God. And we probably won't have to agonize over whether to eat meat that's been offered to pagan idols. Our dilemmas are not going to appear in those precise forms. But as we go through this letter, it will not be hard for us to find connections with our own situation. Looking at Corinth will help us think about the challenges faced by all churches in all times and places. And seeing some of the mistakes the Corinthians made will help us avoid those mistakes ourselves. So with that introduction, let's start into reading the letter. If you haven't turned to chapter 1, it's page 1144, or in the larger print Bibles, 1769. We'll read chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another 
in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. No one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's word. And here in the opening verses of the letter, Paul sets out the core calling of every church. He says to the Corinthians and he says to us, church, be who you are. In the first nine verses, Paul tells us who we are. It's not something we're left to define for ourselves. You and I don't get to make up our identity. God tells us who we are. And then in verses 10 to 17, we discover the greatest challenge facing every church. It's simply the challenge of being who we are. Living in accord with what God tells us about ourselves. So what does God say about us? Who are we? God's church is holy and rich in Christ. The way Paul starts is significant. After introducing himself in verse 1 and mentioning his co-worker Sosthenes, then in verse 2, it's significant that Paul does not say to all you individual Christians who live in Corinth. He says, to the church of God in Corinth. It's singular, it's not plural. Yes, of course, the church is made up of individuals. In fact, the church probably was meeting in several different homes in the city. It might have been quite rare for all of the Christians in Corinth to meet together in one place. But the reality is, There is only one church. Every individual believer is a part of that one church. We don't stand alone. We're not a little island unto ourselves. We're part of the one church, and that church belongs to God. It's not our church to run how we please and use how we please. The church belongs to God. And so, God has the first and the last say about how the church lives, how the church worships, and how the church members relate to one another. And Paul reminds us, this is true in every local manifestation of the one church of God. What Paul is saying applies to all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our location on the map or our place in history does not alter the fact that God owns the church. 
And Paul is also very clear about who belongs to the church. It has nothing to do with our social background, our personality, or our stage in life. No, the church is made up of all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't become part of the church simply by going to church. It's often been pointed out, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. You and I become part of the church by bowing the knee to Jesus. And we do that by acknowledging we need to be saved from God's wrath. And there's no way we can save ourselves. So we trust in what Jesus has done to save us. And then we begin to live our lives under his lordship. It's true, the New Testament describes Jesus as our brother. It's wonderfully true that he knows us like a brother and he cares for us as family. But that doesn't alter the fact that he is also our Lord. As Christians, we live to do what Jesus says. We exist to please him. And even in this opening passage, we cannot miss the centrality of Jesus. Paul mentions Christ or Christ Jesus 14 times in these 17 verses. We cannot talk about the church without talking about Jesus. Because the only way into the church is through Jesus. He's the gatekeeper of the church. So it doesn't matter if we've been attending church services for 50 years. It doesn't matter if our seat in the church building has a little plaque with our name on it. We do not truly belong to the church until we come and call to Jesus for mercy and then bow the knee to him as Lord. So if you're here today and you haven't yet done that, then we certainly want you to feel welcome. But we also have to make it very clear, you will never truly belong until you trust in Jesus as your Savior and then submit to him as your Lord. So we're clear on who owns the church. It's God. We're clear on who belongs to the church. It's all those and only those who are in Christ. But these first nine verses also give us two verses that, two words that describe the church. Paul says we are holy and we are rich. In verse two, Paul says the church of God are those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified just means made holy. And we could translate it that way. And we mustn't miss what Paul is saying because it is amazing. He doesn't say the church is on the way to being holy. He says it is holy. Holy is a word that in the first place belongs to God himself. If you want to know what holiness means, we look at God. And we see a being who is perfect in every way. Unholy things cannot be near him. And that means left to our own devices, none of us could ever be near him. Left to our own achievements, none of us could earn holiness for ourselves. 
But the amazing good news here is that when we come to Jesus, we are made holy. We are made acceptable to God. What is impossible for us by ourselves becomes reality. God's perfect son, Jesus, wraps his holiness around us. He gives us what we could never achieve for ourselves. And so as much as it is true to say that we're works in progress as Christians, that's true, but in God's eyes, we are already made holy. We are sanctified. We have been made acceptable to God. That's the reality of our situation. And it's true not because we are great. It's true because Jesus is great. And he has wrapped his greatness around us like a robe around our shoulders. You'll notice in verse 2, immediately after saying we've been made holy, Paul immediately adds that we are to be holy. We'll come back to that because Paul comes back to it later in the passage. But for now, we need to get hold of this. God's church is holy. A holy person is a saint. And unfortunately, the word saint has come to be associated with just a few extraordinary individuals. An elite group who get to appear on stained glass windows with halos. And so when people today say, I'm no saint, what they mean is, I'm just ordinary. And ordinary people are unholy. But the New Testament turns that on its head. It tells us that the plainest, most ordinary people become saints when they come to Jesus. Now, we'll probably never have visible halos. We might not make it onto a stained glass window. But in Christ, we have been made not just acceptable to God, but beautiful to God. Spotless in his sight. That is the truth about God's church. However we feel, however we look, this is what God tells us about ourselves. This is who we are. Our identity as Christians is not based on our feelings. It's not based on our inclinations or our orientations. It's based on what God tells us about ourselves. And he says we are a people who have been made holy. That's the first word that describes the church. The second word is rich. In verse 3, Paul prays for grace and peace for the church. Then he says God has already given them grace and peace. In verse 5, he says you have been enriched. In every way. What does that mean? They all drove Bentleys? They all lived in big houses? No, we'll find out later in the letter, quite a few of these people were slaves. They had very little in terms of financial riches. So what does Paul mean? Well, he immediately gives examples of the kind of riches he's talking about. At the end of verse 5, he says they've been enriched with all kinds of speech 
and with all knowledge. In other words, they're blessed with good teachers. And because of that, they're able to get at the riches of God's word. And so, verse 6, the initial message about Jesus that Paul had brought them, that message was being confirmed to them. They weren't all at sea now that Paul was gone. They had all they needed to grow in their understanding of the truths Paul had begun to teach them. In fact, Paul says in verse 7, never mind speech and knowledge, you do not lack any spiritual gift. You're fully loaded. You have every spiritual gift that's needed for you to thrive as a church. God has not shortchanged you. God has thought of everything. He has supplied everything for you to be a church that honors him. And Paul says, God will go on supplying all that you need. At the end of verse 7, you're eagerly awaiting for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. In other words, you're waiting for his return. And right up to that day, God will go on supplying what you need. In verse 8, he will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's supplies will never run out. And he'll never renege on his commitment to his church because, verse 9, God is faithful. That is his character. The church is rich because God is rich. Our supplies are not coming to us from a dodgy source. There will never be a breakdown in the church's supply chain. The God who gave us his own son Jesus will also give us everything else we need to live for him and honor him and persevere to the end until we stand at last blameless in his presence. God's church is holy and rich in Christ. That is the core reality of the church. Before anything else is said about the church, this has to be said first. And it not only has to be said, it has to be grasped and taken to heart. Before we talk about what the church is to do, we have to understand what the church is. It belongs to God It's made up of those who are in Christ. It's acceptable to God because of Christ. And it is richly supplied through Christ. Verse 4 said, God gives us all these riches in Christ Jesus. And so in response to verses 4 to 9, the church of Christ in every era and in every place can sing these words. My every need he richly will supply, nor will his mercy ever let me die. In him there dwells a treasure all divine, and matchless grace has made that treasure mine. As you and I think about the church, there can never be any doubt about its value. It's God's. 
There can never be any doubt about its status. It's holy. And there can never be any doubt about its resources. The church is richly supplied for all that it's called to do. Paul wants us to see that because now he shows us the greatest challenge for God's church. Living in accord with who we are in Christ. The greatest challenge is being who we are. Look at verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. It's tempting to say, these verses bring us back to reality after the high and lofty words of verses 1 to 9. But that is not accurate. Verses 1 to 9 are the reality. These verses show how far the Corinthians have drifted from reality. These verses show just how easy it is for the church to forget who we are. We said earlier, Paul knows this church very well. And even though he's away from Corinth, he is being kept up to date. And there are plenty of issues that need addressing. He's learned about one of the main issues from these visitors who've come to him from Chloe's household. And they have told him there's a distinct lack of agreement and unity in the church. There are quarrels. And the word means not just disagreement, it means hot disagreement. Things are beginning to boil over in the church. What are they quarreling about? Is it some central truth of Christianity that's being denied by some in the church? No. These people are falling out over their favorite preachers. Paul, Apollos, and Cephas had all been involved in visiting Corinth and teaching in Corinth. And they all taught the same message about Jesus. Acts tells us Apollos spoke with great fervor and he taught about Jesus accurately. Cephas is the Aramaic form of Peter. The same Peter we've been listening to for the last couple of months telling us about Jesus. So this was not a case of the church quarreling over false teaching versus sound teaching. There would have been some justification in that. But this is just about personality. Personal preferences. So there was one group who wanted to identify Paul as their guru. He started the church and they had no time for anybody else. Another group said Apollos was a much better preacher. They could follow his preaching way better than Paul's. 
Another group said, forget Paul and Apollos. Nobody gets the message across like Peter does. And apparently there was another group that thought they were too smart and too enlightened to need to listen to any preachers. They just followed Christ. They didn't need teachers in the church. That was their angle on the situation as they waded into the quarreling along with everybody else. So on the surface, this is a fight about favorite preachers. But what is the real source of this problem? How has this even come about? The church has forgotten who they are. They've forgotten the truths set out in verses 1 to 9. And because they've forgotten, the church is not being itself. It's not living in accord with who it is in Christ. The church has forgotten that it belongs to God, not to Paul or Apollos or Peter. The church has forgotten that it's holy and called to be holy. That's what we saw back in verse 2. The church's holiness has a purpose. It has an entailment. God made the church holy so we would begin to display that holiness in the way we live. And the way we relate to others. The Corinthians haven't grasped that. They've also forgotten that the church is rich. Part of that richness is the teaching they receive from Paul and Apollos and Cephas, Peter. But instead of thanking God together for those riches, the church is grabbing onto different parts of God's riches and then fighting over them. And so in verses 13 to 17, Paul responds to all this by pointing the church back to who they are. It seems one aspect of these quarrels involved people lining up behind the leader who had baptized them, as if that made them part of rival teams in the church. But Paul says, that is ridiculous. Is Christ divided? In other words, if you're all in Christ, then you're united. Why are you acting like you're on different teams, competing against each other? How could that be? How can one person who's in Christ be in competition with another who's in Christ? And Paul says, I don't want any part of this myself. I don't want you to fall out over me. He says, was I crucified for you? Were you baptized into my name? Of course not. If you're going to line up behind the person who happened to dunk you in the water, Paul says, then I'm glad I only baptized a few of you. 4 verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What Paul is getting at is that baptism is not the main thing. It certainly isn't supposed to divide Christians. It's simply a sign that the gospel of Jesus Christ has taken hold of us and changed us. Baptism is a public sign we're now part of God's church. 
And that's why Paul's focus is on preaching the gospel. Baptism just followed along behind that. So it's not who baptized you that's important. It's what your baptism means. You find new life in Christ. And it's not eloquence. It's not personality on the part of the preacher that matters. What matters is the message of the cross. The good news that Jesus' death has power to save, no matter who is preaching it. Paul is pointing us back to the one thing that unites us. Because he knows it's pretty hard to treat someone as a rival when you remember Jesus Christ died to save that person. Just like he died to save you and me. The situations Paul addresses in this letter might not match up precisely with our situation. But there will always be something we can recognize. And here we don't have to work too hard, do we, to recognize what's familiar. There's always a danger of church ministry turning into a competition. We're all naturally going to gravitate to different personalities. We're all naturally going to have different preferences when it comes to style. Some styles and personalities are going to feel like they're on your wavelength. Others are going to get under your skin. It's always a challenge for us to see past those things and live out our unity in Christ. As Paul writes this letter, he's going to challenge the Corinthians in a lot of ways. But behind all the specific challenges, there's really just one challenge. The challenge is to be who we are. To live in accord with who we are in Christ. We're holy. And we're called to show it in our lives and our words, our attitudes, our relationships. And we're rich. God has given us all the resources we need to be a church that honors him and glorifies him. We're to draw on those rich resources as we live for him. In the course of this letter, Paul will keep on challenging the church. But it's important to see right at the beginning, Paul is never, ever going to call us to be something we're not. Again and again, he's going to call us not to live in defiance of who we are. We're to live lives that show the holiness and the riches God has given us in Christ. So if you've come to Jesus for new life and if he is your Lord, then when you hear a challenge from the Bible... Don't hear it and think, I have to become a different person. No. God has already made you a different person. Our calling is to go with the grain of God's work in us, not against the grain. Our call is to be who we are. And when we see things that way, 
the way they really are, doesn't that give us a lot more hope as Christians? When we aim to live for Jesus, when we look to honor him in some particular situation, we're not trying to be a different person. We're just seeking to be who we are. We're going to close by confessing together these truths about who we are. We're people who have everything we need in Christ. So let's join in praising him as we sing in Christ alone.